You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Family, good morning. So good to see all of you. If you are joining us on the live stream, thanks so much. Good morning to you as well. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. Good to see all of you. That fan is strong. I can feel it right here. Blowing. I, I was just an impressive fan. I just, uh, but uh, it is good to see you. If it is your first time, welcome. We're so glad to have you here. And if it is your first time, we'd love to give you a free gift, a tumbler or a sippy cup or water bottle. And that is our gift to you. You can get that over at the info desk, which is right over there. If you would like more information about our church or there's something we can be praying about for you, there's a slip in the seat back in front of you. You can take that fill it out, and then you can put it in the offering slot, which is right over there. Uh, Over the next few months, we're going to be looking at the first 11 chapters of Genesis, which is the very first book in the Bible. And we've entitled this series, Let's Start at the Beginning, because the Bible is not just a hodgepodge of laws and myths. It's actually one unified story of redemption. And and if you know anything about stories, if you skip the introduction to the story, you probably won't understand the story. You don't understand the main characters, the basic conflict. You might miss the point of the story entirely. And the same is true for us with the biblical story. Genesis 1 through 11 is the introduction to the story. And it really gives us the framework for understanding everything about the story of redemption, who we are, what this world is created to be, what went wrong, how God's going to make it right. This uh, passage, these chapters, they're really not just the foundation of the biblical story, but of our personal stories as well. Last week, we learned that the main character in the story is God, and so if you want to start in understanding this story, or in our stories, you have to start with God. Today, we'll look at God's setting for the story. In fact, the setting that he creates and what God wants us to learn. And as I thought about how to intro this, I couldn't think of a better way than just to read this passage. You've got it in your notes. Would you read it with me? Not out loud. You can just listen. I'll read. But I'll read and you'll listen. biblical story starts like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, 
and fruit trees bearing fruit in which there is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth, and it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Let's pray. God, your works declare your greatness and they declare your steadfast love. And Lord, as we reflect on this beautiful passage, would we be drawn to you? Would we be led to worship? Would we see the goodness of submitting our lives to your rule? For only you know what's good for us. We pray this in your, for your sake, Jesus. Amen. So I have a very rare condition, uh, self-diagnosed condition. It's called cinematic narcolepsy. Do you have cinematic narcolepsy? Uh, I don't have a sleeping disorder until I watch movies. And then I can fall asleep instantly. I don't care what the movie, it doesn't matter if we're watching Infinity Wars, if you put me in a dark room, 
comfortable chair, air conditioning, I am gone. I'm gone. It is a $12 nap. That's what a movie is for me. So if I remember a movie, it's a big deal. And one movie that I really remember that left an impression on me was Gravity. Came out about eight years ago, back when people went to movies. Um, but it starred Sandra Bullock as an astronaut. And she goes on this space mission where every conceivable thing goes wrong. And spoiler alert, against all odds, she lives. Now, some critics of the movie saw it as survival of the fittest, that it was really just a movie about humanity's indomitable will to live and survive, and, and that's there, but, you know, I'm a pastor, so I had a different take. I thought it was a deeply spiritual movie because throughout the movie, you have this incredible longing in yourself to be home. That, that space is the most inhospitable place you can possibly imagine. You are on the razor's edge of death all the time, and all human technology and innovation can do is just barely keep you alive. Space in the movie is characterized by this awful, incessant silence. There's no sound in space. It's empty. And by the time, you know, she finally makes it to Earth, there's this audible sigh of relief. And I remember thinking, you're home. You're finally home. Where does that sense of home come from? This chapter helps us understand what God is doing when he is creating this world and just how good God is to create a world like this. So we're going to spend a few weeks on this passage. And so don't panic. I'm not going to explain all of this today. I'm not going to explain all of it in the next five weeks. But hopefully what we can start doing is first giving you this 30,000-foot view of the creation story and what this is, and then see if we can grasp what God is trying to teach us here. This passage is a masterpiece. It is a literary masterpiece. It's not poetry, technically. Not technically Hebrew poetry. It's a kind of prose, but the language is exalted. It's poetic. And did you notice there's a rhythm in this passage? It's almost like a song, isn't it? And God said, and it was so, and it was good. Morning and evening, according to its kind. These phrases just keep recurring and, and recurring. There's a rhythm, but then there's even more subtle rhythms than that. For, for example, Moses describes the creation as this seven-day event, and we'll get into that in a second. Seven is the Hebrew number of completion, but that's not the only seven in this passage. In fact, there are multiple sevens. For instance, uh, the introduction has 21 words in, in, uh, in, in Hebrew, so it's a multiple of seven. The conclusion has 35 words in Hebrew, so it's a multiple of seven. God 35 times, earth, 21 times, heaven or the expanse, 21 times. God saw that it was good, seven times. Do you get the idea? <laughs> Completion, the finished work. There's this other rhythm in the passage where God prepares creation and then he fills creation. He forms things and then he fills things. He gives creation order 
And then he gives it abundance so it can flourish. So on day one, he creates day and night. He separates these things. And then what does he do on day four? He fills day and night with the sun and the moon and these heavenly bodies. Day two, God separates the sky from the sea. And then on day five, what does he do? He fills the sea with fish. He fills the sky with birds. On day three, God creates land from the sea. And then on day six, what does he do? He gives the land its creatures, animals, and and then the supreme creation, us. Do you see how this passage, it's like a song. It's like a chorus. Everything is interconnected, balanced, harmonious. So what's Moses, the author, trying to do here? What does he want to teach us through this? Three issues I want to explore this morning as quickly as I can. Again, we're looking at the forest so we can understand the trees. Three things about this. First, I want to ask the question, what does this song that Moses is writing have to do with the earth's ancientness, with the earth's age? And we'll get to that in a second. Second, I want to see how this song declares God's greatness. Third, how it declares God's goodness, and what Moses was trying to teach the people of Israel and us about their God and his creation through this passage. Now, now before we look at the, what the passage teaches about God and his purposes, I just want to get right to the elephant in the room. Because for many, many people, there is a question they have about this text, and it is the very first question they will ask when they come to this text. What does this passage teach about the age of the earth? And and how do we reconcile the biblical account with what we know from modern science, from geology, biology, astronomy, so forth? So it's a question of the earth's ancientness, and I know it's a clunky word, but I really needed it to make my outline work, so just forgive me, okay? It's the best word I could find. I tried. You try putting together outlines every week, okay? Got to use lousy words sometimes. All right. Earth's ancientness. How do you answer that question? Well, Christians disagree. In fact, there are at least 10 different ways Christians read this passage to try to reconcile it or fit it with modern science. But I would say the two most prominent views are these. Some Christians would say that Genesis 1 clearly teaches that God created the world in six 24-hour periods. Now, if that's the case, the earth is relatively young, and depending on who you talk to, somewhere around six to 11,000 years old. And there are a variety of ways that, that that account can be reconciled with modern science and attempts to do that. And, and in response, other Christians say, no, the days aren't literal days. They're, they're like stages or ages or epochs or something. And so this passage doesn't teach the earth is young. In fact, it could teach that the earth is really, really old. Now, at Creekside, we don't take a stance on this, just to let you know. We, we say uh, that the age of the earth is something that we kind of throw up our hands <laughs> and say this is an issue where sincere Christians who are godly, who believe in the authority and inerrancy of Scripture, sincerely disagree. And frankly, probably on our staff, we disagree too. I have the right view. Um, and it, No, I'm just kidding. But... <laughs> Uh, but we argue about these things, and it's, it's good. And, and to be honest, there are Christians I greatly admire who hold the young earth view, 
greatly admire who hold the older earth view, greatly admire who hold sort of a middle earth view. There's lots of views. And so maybe you ask, Jeff, what's your view? Well, before I tell you, let me say this. If you disagree with me, that's okay. There, there is much we could agree on here as Christians that God is the creator, creating out of nothing. There, there is more in common than we have apart as we approach this. But I hope what you will appreciate about my take is this. As believers, we don't start with science and then work backwards to the text and say, okay, here's what we know from science, and now we have to shoehorn the Bible into that somehow and figure it out. That's a bad approach to the Bible. The approach we should take to reading Scripture is what did God intend through the human author to communicate to the human audience at the time? What is the truth he's trying to teach? How do we glean it? That is the question that should govern the way we understand this. So what's my view? Here's my view. I don't think the passage teaches a young earth. I don't think the passage teaches an old earth. I don't think the passage teaches a middle earth. In fact, I don't think this passage is even trying to answer the question, how old is the earth? Because I don't think Moses is concerned about the answer to that question. In fact, I think that the reason that so many conversations about Genesis 1 revolve around the age of the earth is not because Moses is concerned with that question, but it's because we as modern people are very concerned <laughs> about that question. We are acculturated and raised to think scientifically about everything. Everything. Especially in the post-enlightenment world in which we live. And so, when I see a description of nature, like in Genesis 1, my first instinct is to think what? How does this work scientifically, right? What's the, what's the mechanism? What are the processes at work? What are the mechanics of this thing? I am just naturally going to ask those questions as someone living in this context. The question is, do those kinds of passage illuminate what's there? Or do they obscure what's there? Here's another thing that I think is going on when people talk about this passage. There's this idea that floats around in our culture and on the internet especially. Uh, it goes something like this. This is kind of how skeptics approach Christians on this. They go, you know, once upon a time, every Christian thought that God created the world in six literal days. Then in the 18th and 19th century, we learned things. Humanity got smart. And then once humanity was smart about geology and biology and astronomy and all these other things, then Christians went, uh-oh, we got to read the Bible differently. So we ran back to Genesis 1 and figured out a new way to read the Bible that kind of fit what we know from, from modern science. You ever heard someone talk like that? Here's the problem with that. That's not how church history worked at all when it came to this passage. In fact, church history is much more complicated than that. Now, many believers throughout church history have taken the young earth view of this passage, that it teaches six literal 24-hour periods. That's true. But it is by no means the only view of this passage. In fact, 1,500 years before the discoveries of modern science, Christians argued a lot about the best way to understand the days of Genesis. Andrew Brown did a survey of the early church on Genesis 1, and here's what he says. Any way of reading this text is almost incapable of being new. 
any way. You come up with a new way, it's probably not new. Someone in church history already thought about this. Christians have taken different approaches to this text for a very long time. And many leaders in the early church, Augustine, Clement, Origen, Didymus the Blind. I feel bad for Didymus the Blind. How did he get that name, right? Ambrose, Gregory the Great, none of them took the 24-hour period view. In fact, they understand it as some kind of framework or literary device, and that Moses was actually giving us an analogy for God's creative work, not a literal 24-hour description. So what would lead them to think that? What would lead them to think that the, the days here, there's more going on than a strict chronology of events? Well, here's some of the reasons they give, and there are lots of reasons. I'm just going to give you three to think this isn't about a literal week of creation and that Moses is really concerned about chronology. Three reasons, I would say, from the biblical text. First one is this. There's creation before the days of creation. That's the first one. Look back at verses 1 and 2 in your notes there. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, the traditional way of reading these verses, and I think the most natural way of reading the Hebrew, I'm going to dive deep, okay? Is that all right? I want to help try to answer this for you, okay? So just bear with me here. The traditional way of reading these verses, the most natural way of taking the Hebrew syntax is this, that in the beginning, God created everything. And he created two kinds of space, heaven, symbolic of God's space, earth, symbolic of our space. That's what God does in the beginning. And then in verse 2, we read about the state of creation after God creates these places. The earth is formless and void. In other words, after the initial act of creation, creation is disordered and empty. Darkness hovered over the sea. That's a symbol of emptiness, lifelessness. This doesn't mean the earth is a bad place. It means it's an unfinished place. That's why the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters like a bird incubating eggs, bringing new life. The Spirit is present and is about to bring life. And then what does God do for the rest of chapter 1? He brings order to the disorder and he fills the emptiness with life. He creates these spaces, and then he forms and fills these spaces, and then we get to chapter 2, and we read, it's finished. It's completed. What's the implication there? Well, verses 1 and 2 happen before verse 3. So before day 1, you've got something created. Well, how long was that? <laughs> how many days did that take? I don't know, and I don't think Moses cares. <laughs> Because I don't think he's care, concerned about giving a scientific chronology of events. That, that's one reason I don't think this is a strict chronology. Here's the second reason. There are days before days. Days before days. When does God assign days their function in this passage? It's not day one. It's day four. Right? So you have morning and evening. You have day threes, day, three days. And finally, on day four... God says, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate day from night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. So in a sense, God doesn't assign days, their function is days, until day four. 
which really makes days one through three weird, huh? That's a weird morning and evening on day one through three, and a weird day. What kind of day was that? Well, I'm not sure, and I don't think it's really worth arguing about because I don't think Moses is concerned with that question of what kind of days these literally are. Third, rest is a weird thing for God to do. In fact, it's clearly not literal. When God rests from creation, it is a metaphor. It is a picture. God does not literally rest on the Sabbath. And you say, Jeff, how do you know that? Because that's what Jesus says in John 5. (laughs) Remember when Jesus works on the Sabbath in John 5? And, and they accuse Jesus of working on the Sabbath. Remember what he says? My father is working until now, and so am I. What is Jesus saying there? God is always active. God never rests in the sense we do. God is always creating, sustaining his creation. So whatever it means for God to rest, it doesn't mean what it means for us to rest. Does that make sense? That it's a metaphor. It's a poetic description. Here's the other thing. The seventh day is not a literal day. And the reason I know that is because there's no indication it ends. There's no morning and evening. It just keeps going. In fact, according to the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 4, the day of God's rest is something that goes on till now. After God rests, he invites us into his rest, which is relationship with him. But what that means is that's a really weird day, isn't it? It's a day that just keeps going and and going. And so what is Moses saying through this? Well, I take all of those as clues that this is an analogy Moses is giving us to understand the work of creation. The rest, the work, the days. God is like an ideal worker who works, who finishes who rests, and the work is good. There's a logical sequence, but I don't think it's a literal work week. And so this question of, well, how much time does it take? I just don't even think it came into Moses' mind. Which means you can go in a lot of directions in terms of figuring out how old the earth is. I think Moses is giving us a window into something that requires exalted poetic language to talk about this miracle of creation. So you hear that, and maybe you go, well, Jeff, does that mean the Bible's anti-science? That that kind of language is against science? No, in fact, it's just the opposite. Here's what's amazing about this passage. Here's the implication. This passage isn't, I don't think, a scientific description But actually, if you think about it, it's foundational for modern science, and here's why. What does this passage describe? A world that is governed by laws that give it order and predictability. What do you need to do science? You need an observable world that will act the same way again and again and again, so you can conduct experiments, test them, prove them, and form theories, right? Y'all can fact check me, scientists. Am I right here? I'm a pastor. I'm spitballing here, okay? I might be wrong. 
But, but here's what's amazing about this passage. This is not the way people viewed the world in the ancient world. Chinese civilization had incredible technology. They didn't have scientific endeavors. Greeks had incredible philosophy. They did not explore the material world. You know why? In so many ancient cultures, nature was random. Nature was just gods competing with each other, forces. It was not predictable. It was completely terrifying and unpredictable. And there was no reason to explore it because it wasn't uniform or orderly. And then the Bible comes along and says, no, there aren't many gods competing. There's one God who has ordered this thing so you can explore it and learn something. So actually, far from competing with science, the Bible gives a foundation for us to think scientifically. Does that make sense? So hopefully I've answered that question. I know you're going to email me and debate me because um, no, I'm just kidding. You can email me. But, but, but that's that question and so now, let's get to the heart of this. If that is not what Moses is trying to communicate here, what is he trying to communicate? What's the big idea Moses is trying to convey here? It's important to remember who Moses is writing to. The, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Hebrews called that the book of Moses. One book. It wasn't five separate books, it was one book, this is Israel's origin story. Do you know what that means? You have to view this as Israel's origin story. Like Moses is writing the origin story of Israel for them to understand who they are. And do you know who he's writing to? He's writing to the generation of Israelites who are standing on the Jordan about to cross into the promised land. And here's what they need to know about their identity as the people of God. That's the audience. Now, think about how that impacts the way you read the first five books of the Bible. You've got these people who have been taken out of slavery by miraculous acts of God, and there are all of these powerful gods in Egypt they've heard about. And now they are going into Canaan, where there are all of these rival powerful gods. What do they need to know about the God of Israel who delivered them? That he is the baddest God on the block. <laughs> that he is the God above all gods. That this God that led you out of the promised land is bringing you through. He's not just some tribal territorial deity. He's actually the creator of everything. So you shouldn't be scared of any of these rival gods or rival nations. You should fear him and follow him. That is what Moses is trying to teach the people. And what he is doing here is two things to keep Israel close to Yahweh, their God. One is he's saying, this God is greater than all other gods. You know, people have argued about the genre of this chapter for a long time. What kind of literature is this? I'd like to give my own theory this morning, okay? Here's Jeff's theory of what kind of genre this is. Trash talk. <laughs> Trash talk. That's what this is. I, you know, I'm sad, looking back at my sports career, I was a terrible trash talker. Good, good trash talk is just glorious when you do it well, right? I, I remember the first time I tried to trash talk, I, I was going to say, I know you are, but what am I? Right? Because that's, you can't lose with that one, right? That's like the fail safe if you don't know what else to say. Except I said, I know I am, and what are you? <laughs> and I never trash talked again, never tried it. This is trash talk. Here's why. 
what is clear about Genesis 1 is two things. First, it sounds like other creation stories in the ancient Near East. It does. It sounds like if you read the Egyptian creation myth and the Babylonian creation myth and the Canaanite creation myth, it sounds like that. And so some people go, well, this is just a myth. It's just a myth because they stole language from here and concepts from here, and they're just kind of cleaning it up and presenting it to Israel. Here's the problem with that. It has similar language, but the God it presents is totally different than the other creation myths. So how do you put those things together? I think Moses is borrowing from these stories and basically trash-talking. He's saying, this God that you serve, do you know how much greater he is? Then all of these competing gods, for instance, in this story, God alone is supreme. There's no other creation myth like that. In the other creation myths, there's gods who come out of nature or who exist at the same time with nature or water is what they come out of. Here, God creates the water. Nothing is more central or supreme than God. And how does God create? He creates out of nothing. He just says stuff, and stuff happens. The, the gods of the nations had to work with pre-existing material to fashion stuff. God just speaks. God rules the stars. In the ancient world, stars were associated with gods. The gods were the stars. They, they were, and, and let's think, if you're an ancient person and you see the sun, right? What are you going to work? Yeah, that thing right? That's the biggest, most terrifying thing I can find. It blinds me. It hurts my skin. I'm going to worship that thing. And, and what does this, this passage say about the stars? It says, God created a lesser light and a greater light. Don't you love verse 16? And God created the stars. Like, I wish God had done a little more with that one, right? Like, if I'm writing Genesis 1, like, wouldn't you mention, like, the horsehead nebula or, like, something in there, right? Like, but no, that's not the, the point. Is He just wants to say, oh yeah, the stars aren't gods. Just God created them and the stars. Spoke them into existence. God also rules the seas. I love what it says in verse 21. The creature that Moses names is very specific. It says God creates the great sea creature. God creates the sea monsters, the scariest things in the ocean God created. Because in the Canaanite myth, the fertility god Baal had to fight with a sea monster in order to create the world. Here, no, God just created that. Do you see the point here? It's very deliberate that Moses is saying, God is greater than any of these so-called deities. And so he alone is to be worshipped. There's no competing powers in heaven. There's just one God. Listen only to him. Here's the implication. God doesn't need us. <laughs> we need him. See, in all of these other myths, in some way, creation is an extension of the gods. And so the gods are dependent on creation in some way. Like Marduk in the Babylonian myth, oh man, we're getting tired up here as gods. You know what? We need slaves, so let's create human humans. <laughs> God doesn't need us. There is no pre-existing material. No, God just speaks, and yet everything is dependent on us. And let's be honest, you don't worship a God that needs you, right? 
If God was just so lonely that he couldn't live without you, so he created him, that's not an impressive God. That's a weird codependent junior high God. I just can't live without you, right? So I just got to create you. No, that God, then like the greatest thing about God is me because God needs me and so I should just worship me. This God clearly does not need you. He speaks you into being and everything about you is contingent on him and your breath is borrowed. Your life is borrowed. He owes you nothing else. You owe him everything. So fear him. That's the starting point. Israel, your God, the covenant God, is the creator God. Here's the good news. This God isn't just terrifyingly great. He is astonishingly good. He's good. As we said this morning, what does creation declare? Psalm 136, the steadfast love of the Lord. You heard the refrain, right? It was good. It was good. It was good. It was good. And then at the end, what is it? It's very good. That's God's evaluation on God's work. It's good. And something I didn't really grasp until this week is this question. Who's it good for? I think the point Moses is making here is that creation, it's not just good in the sense that it's beautiful and pleasing, although that's true. It's good because it's good for us. The boundaries of day and night and earth and sea and the fruitfulness of the land and everything given to us for food, who is that meant to bless? You. It's that God envisages a world And then us in it and thinks, how can I over-engineer this world to make it as blessed as possible for the people who are going to be living in it? You You know, in every other creation myth, humanity is an afterthought. It's just God, the gods created a lot of stuff and then humans fell out at some point. We needed slaves. God needed to use you for some stuff. But but here, and we'll talk more about this in the weeks to come. It's so clear that that we are the pinnacle of God's creative work and everything that comes before is meant to serve and benefit us. Do you see why creation declares the steadfast love of the Lord? Because God has over-engineered this world for our good. This world could have been so much more inhospitable than it is. It's staggering how much this world is engineered for us to live and thrive. I, I was thinking about it this week. I was, I was talking to Kyle, you know, one of our elders, because sci- he actually knows things about science, unlike me. And he's, he's geeking out. He was like, Jeff, like, I watched this thing about the Amazon rainforest. And do you know what gives the Amazon rainforest its nutrients? And I was like, no, Kyle, science guy, tell me, because I know nothing about science. And he's like, well, let me tell you. He's like, what feeds the Amazon are these ancient deserts in Africa. And then currents of wind blow the nutrients over the ocean that give life to the Amazon. And so the Amazon, right, the lungs of the world, the place of life, it, it gets its nutrients from the place of death. 
do you see just the interconnectedness and complementarity of the way God creates everything for our good? And that's what you should be astonished by when you look at creation is not just that, that there's hostility and brokenness and fallenness in the world. That's all true because of sin. We'll get there. But this place is just over-engineered for us. You should see God's love. God did not create because he needed more slaves because he was lazy. Actually, God creates for our good because he's by nature a giving God. It's the next implication, that God doesn't create us to use us but to bless us. And, and doesn't that change the way you think about obeying God's commands? That if, if God orders the world, if he creates the natural laws in this way because he knows what's best for us, then the moral laws God gives us, why would he give us? Because he knows what's best for us. That's what C.S. Lewis said. He's like, that's why I obey God is because he designed me. <laughs> I'm not going to put sand in my car and expect it to run well. The designer said, you need oil. And so when God commands me to do things, he knows what's best for me. That's the motivation to obey. He is so good. The final thing this says, and then we're done. Of course, when we look at creation today, we look at it in its fractured, broken, fallen state. But what Genesis 1 tells us is that the created world is not a bad thing that needs to be discarded, but it's a broken thing that needs to be redeemed. And that we, as fallen and evil as we are by sin, are still the pinnacle of God's creation. And so... Jesus takes on our humanity forever to redeem us. Is there any greater demonstration of God's love than that the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, would take on our created nature forever and live with us forever as a human being in redemption? When God said it was very good, he meant it. And so when we think about this world, no matter how messed up it is, it is still God's world, created by a good God, and he is on a mission to redeem it from all of its brokenness. And Jesus proves just how committed God is to that purpose. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you for the beauty and intricacy of your word that testifies about the beauty and intricacy of your world and ultimately about your beauty and glory. God, I pray that even as we go out of here today and, and we see your creation, that we would see all of the care you've taken to make this world hospitable for us. And Lord, ultimately, we know that you created this world to be not just our dwelling place, but your dwelling place with us. And so, Jesus, thank you for coming to earth to bring heaven and earth back together and reunite your space with our space that was fractured by sin and to redeem us from the fall and ultimately to redeem all of creation so that ultimately one day, Jesus, this place will be your dwelling place and ours married together forever. 
would we be astounded by your greatness and goodness, and would it cause us to fear you, to worship you, and to follow you more closely. We pray it in your name. Amen.